0: Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12, on page 993. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's Betty not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it.
1: Our next reading is taken from one Corinthians chapter seven, verses eight to twenty four, which is on page one one five O of the Bibles. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Where you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bond servant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with god
2: the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple the precepts of the lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes heavenly father we praise you very much indeed this morning for your words And we pray that as we look at 1 Corinthians 7 together, you would indeed revive our souls, you would make us wise, we would be those who rejoice in your words, and you would enlighten us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, please would you look at... um, just the last two verses, verses 23 and 24 of that reading, because I think they are the key verses in this passage, and they get to the very heart of the passage for us. So let me read again. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 23 and 24. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. My aim this morning is that each one of us who belongs to Jesus Christ would live out the new life that we have in Christ, and we would do so in whatever circumstances of life God has put us in, not forever looking over the shoulder, thinking to ourselves, if only my life was different, if only my circumstances were different. It's so important because each one of us, I I imagine we are so quick to believe the lie, aren't we, that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. You see, how do you finish this sentence, if only I? As you think about your life, your circumstances, how do you finish that sentence, if only? If only I was more educated, if only I had more money, if only I was in a different job, if only I had a different upbringing, If only I was married, if only I was married to someone else, if only I had different gifts, if only I had a different personality, if only I lived somewhere else, if only my life circumstances were different. The list is endless, isn't it? If only. If only life had not turned out the way it's turned out, if only I hadn't turned out the way I had turned out. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a huge lesson in contentment but what we're going to see is not simply contentment for the sake of contentment but contentment for a purpose so that we might get on with serving jesus and living the life that god has given us to live and i hope very much that if you're here this morning and you're not yet a christian if you're looking on the christian faith then i think what we're going to see this morning i hope you're going to see that it's wonderfully attractive that it is actually the key of getting off the treadmill of if only. Now, I need to apologize for the sermon title, I think, on the program card, which reads Marriage and Divorce. A far uh, better title uh, is uh, simply Life and Contentment, because, yes, Paul uh, picks up on where we were last week. He does talk about uh, marriage, singleness, and, and divorce, and so on. Uh, he's continuing to pick up on uh, the questions which the Corinthians have asked him, uh, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So in verses 8 and 9, as we uh, just had the reading, he speaks to the unmarried. In verses 10 and 11, to the married. In verses 12 to 16, to those who are married to unbelievers. But then in verses 17 to 24... He goes on to talk about a big principle, a big principle for life in general, Uh, for all of us, regardless of whether we are are married or unmarried or so on. I want to start first of all this morning with a big principle and then go back to see how that principle applies in the three areas of life that Paul talks about. So first of all, the big principle, verses 17 to 24, it is very simple, it is remain as you are, remain as you are, verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. It's actually a principle which runs throughout this whole chapter, remain, It's always helpful, isn't it, when you're looking at a Bible passage to see what the repeated words are, to see what the repeated phrases are. And the most often repeated word in this chapter is remain. So it's there in verse 8 it is good for them to remain single. Verse 11, but if she does, she should remain unmarried. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Verse 26, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Verse 40, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. That is the main main point, the main application of this whole chapter. Stop looking over your shoulder as if the grass is always greener somewhere else. Well, why? And here, I think, is the thing which completely goes against every grain in our culture. The reason is because our circumstances do not determine our ability to honor and serve God. Let me say that, say that again. Our circumstances do not determine our ability to honor and serve God. The context of this whole section is Paul's teaching on who we are if we have now put our trust in Jesus. Just look back to chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, <clears throat> you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Or chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. That is repeated in verse 23 of chapter 7. You are bought with a price. It's vital that we remember, if we put our trust in Jesus Christ, that our, our fundamental identity as Christians flows precisely out of who we now are in Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. We so easily define ourselves, don't we, in other ways, whether we are married or single, divorced, widowed, straight, homosexual, parents, childless, or by the job we do or by countless other things. Now, all of those things are significant, but we must not let them determine our fundamental sense of who we are. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are first and foremost those who belong to Jesus and have been saved by Jesus through his death on the cross, purchased at a very great price, such that we now belong to him, such that we are to serve him. That is the very core of who we now are. In fact, it's how 1 Corinthians began. Do you remember? Why don't you just turn back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Do you remember how 1 Corinthians started? Chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints... Generally, we said the word sanctifies means set apart to serve. Similarly, the word saints, one set apart to serve, to serve Jesus. When we put our trust in Jesus, it's not as if Jesus joins my team to help me achieve the ambitions which I've always had for my life. Jesus there to serve me. No, it is that I, having been bought at a great price, am now to serve him. That is to be the focus of my life in everything that I do and am. It's the heartbeat of 1 Corinthians. You're not saved to serve yourself. You are saved to serve Jesus Christ. As we've seen throughout this letter, God wants us not only to believe in Christ crucified but then for our lives to be shaped by Christ crucified here in chapter 7 in the context of marriage, divorce, and singleness. It's about valuing the life that we have now in Christ and therefore, verse 17 of chapter 7, living the life the Lord has assigned us. Perhaps an illustration from a children's party will help. It's time for pass the Parcel. Each layer has been beautifully and meticulously wrapped, painstakingly so, with a present in each layer so that each child goes away with a present. It's a politically correct version of Pass the Parcel, prizes for everyone, no one's gonna get left out. But by the end of the game, there is complete carnage, of course, because Jake has opened his present and doesn't like it, he is looking over his shoulder to see what Sam's got, and would much rather the present that Sam has ended up with. Meanwhile, Lily is almost in tears because she would rather have had Sophie's present over here. In fact, no one's happy because everyone is looking over their shoulder uh, longing for everyone else's present, at which point the wise party host moves on to the next game. The point, verse 17, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to them. In other words, our response, you see, not to think, if only I had something different, but actually to live the life that God has given me. That's why in verses 18 to 21, Paul addresses the, the two big social divisions in first century Roman society. In verses 18 and 19, the division, first of all, between Jew and Gentile. Let me read them. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Roman culture looked down on Jewish culture. For those who had become Christians from Jewish backgrounds... It seems as if some were seeking to remove the marks of their circumcision. Apparently, it was possible, but we won't go into the details of that now. But to do so, in order to climb the social ladder, to advance their social mobility. But what matters far more, says Paul, verse 19, is keeping the commandments of God, serving Jesus And then verses 20 to 21, the division between slave and free. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. Now, we mustn't misunderstand. Stand Paul as if he somehow approves of slavery. No, verse 21, he says, if you can gain your freedom, then gain your freedom. But don't be concerned about it as if you are a second-class Christian if you're a slave, as if your Christian service and Christian ministry as a slave is in some way second rate. To the slave, Paul says, verse 22, you're free in Christ. You belong to the Lord. But to the free person... He says, you are to regard yourself as a slave of Christ and at his disposal. See how wonderfully liberating that is? Many Christians in India are amongst the very poorest of society, at the very, the very lowest of the low, so to speak. Does that diminish their ability to serve the Lord Jesus in their context? Does that mean their Christian service and Christian ministry is second-rate? Nothing of the sort. What about the Christian in the UK working on the supermarket till or as a delivery driver or in a call centre? Does their lowly job diminish their ability to serve Jesus? Is their Christian life in some way second-rate as a result? Not at all. Because what really counts in life, verse 19, is keeping the commandments of God. Verse 22, being a slave of Christ. It's very subversive, isn't it? In our upwardly mobile culture. Because, of course, from a worldly point of view, we view the circumstances in which we uh, find ourselves, we regard them, don't we, the circumstances of life, as very important Indeed, we instinctively have a scale in our minds which tells us it's better to be a doctor than a road sweeper. It's better to be a millionaire than on the minimum wage. It's better to be in a five-bedroom house than it is in a bedsit. It's better to be married than unmarried. And as a result, life can so easily become an endless quest chasing after these things, trying to better ourselves and change our circumstances. But God wants us to know this morning it is spiritually irrelevant whether we are rich or poor, whether we have a high-flying job or a lowly job, blue-collar or white-collar, educated or uneducated. None of these things determine our ability to live the Christian life and to get on with serving the Lord Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, your energies should not be poured into seeking to change your life situation, but instead to live for Jesus and serve Jesus with the life that he's given you today. Not always looking over the hill, hoping that something else will come along, but investing your energies in serving Jesus with the life he's given you today. So verse 23 Don't become slaves of men to the expectations of other people. So often I think that uh, we can fear, can't we, missing out. You know, what if I don't get that promotion? What if I don't get all those exam results? Well, yes, you may miss out on what other people regard as importance. But you won't be missing out on the really big thing in life, which is serving the Lord Jesus Perhaps you're here this morning and you're looking for guidance about a new job. Well, here it is. Yes, you're free. You're free to apply for a different job, just as the slave is free to get their freedom if the opportunity comes. But the criteria for whether or not you take it should not be your career development or your sense of personal fulfillment, but whether it's going to help you to serve Jesus better. Men, if it means you have less time to lead your family, don't take it. Everyone, if we have less time and fewer opportunities to serve the Lord Jesus and to promote the gospel, don't take it. What matters is serving Jesus, keeping the commandments of God. And yes, there are those wonderfully in the church family who have said no to the assumption that they will simply keep on progressing up the career ladder. They're not slaves to the expectations of others. It is wonderfully liberating. Or perhaps you're looking for guidance as a parent. What are we going to encourage our children to see as the most important thing in life? Parents, we constantly fret, don't we, about our children, about them getting left behinds? Are they sleeping through the night when they're two weeks old? Have they got grade 8 piano by the time they're six? Have they got all uh, A-star GCSEs? Are they going to go to the right university? It is endless. Instead, let's make sure we have bigger ambitions, more important ambitions for our children. Not to be worldly and obsess about status and position but to focus on serving the Lord Jesus in whatever area of life he has placed them in and in whatever circumstances he has placed them in. Again, wonderfully at liberating from the tyranny of the expectation of others. Or perhaps you're looking for guidance about who to go out with or who to get married to. Well, I hope we can see the most important question we honestly need to ask ourselves is whether that other person will help you to serve the Lord Jesus. And there will be a whole range of other applications of this principle which we can discuss over coffee. So that's the big principle this morning, verses 17 to 24. It is to remain. What we're going to do now is to go back in the passage and look at those three specific examples. One of the lies I think we're constantly being fed by the glossy magazines and films and television programs is that life is all about finding that special person he gets the girl, she gets the boy, they live happily ever after, or there's the interview in uh, Hello! magazine, or the the Saturday section of the newspaper, depending on whatever it is you read, which shows them living the perfect life. And we so easily think to ourselves, don't we, well, unless I have that special relationship, unless I have the, the, the perfect life, then actually my life will always be second best. But actually, 1 Corinthians 7 reminds us that if we're following Jesus Christ then in a very real sense, we have that special relationship already in Jesus. He is the key to life. And it's our relationship with Jesus that enables us then to live out the circumstances of life that God has given us, and even to do so in circumstances which, in many senses, may seem very unideal to us. So first of all, to the unmarried, verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Notice our big principle is there, verse 8. It's good to remain single. But it's also a matter of Christian freedom. We'll see much more of this uh, next week. How how Paul will say uh, to those who are single, they do well. To those who are married, they do well as well. You might say, how can anyone live as a single person in a culture which shouts at us that unless you have that special person in your life, then actually life's always going to be second best? Well, precisely because of who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. We've been bought at a price. He is personally committed to us. His Holy Spirit lives in us. He is our true security. He is the key to being fruitful and useful in life. In other words, we mustn't deceive ourselves about marriage. The sort of Bridget J. syndrome, you know, is as if marriage will solve all our problems and meet all our needs. No, true contentment, true purpose, is to be found only in Jesus as we serve him. It is not something which another person, a husband or wife, can provide. Many in this room who are married will testify to that. Come back next week, and we'll see the gospel reason why it's good to remain single. Secondly, to the married, verses 10 and 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Notice in verse 10, Paul says, not I but the Lord, because this is the situation which the Lord Jesus spoke directly about. Uh, Yes, there are very rare circumstances in which divorce is permitted. We had uh, that first reading this morning, didn't we, from Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus speaks about sexual immorality, where the marriage covenant has clearly been broken. It's always a great sadness, and Paul uh, picks that up in verse 11 and recognizes such exceptional situations. But notice too, verse 11, that our big principle is also there, that marriage is for life. Unless separation has been for the exceptional reason Jesus spoke about then she should remain unmarried or be reconciled. It's so different, isn't it, from what the secular counsellor will say, which is, no doubt, that every marriage has a limited shelf life. And notice, too, that even in the case of an exceptional situation such as adultery, that needn't necessarily lead to divorce, although it may Can't you say, how could you possibly live in a marriage like that? How can you rekindle the warmth and love and tenderness in a marriage which has gone so cold? Well, it is by considering the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross and uh, his great sacrificial love for us. The gospel, you see, is a great help for us. As we keep saying throughout 1 Corinthians, not just uh, believing in the death of Jesus Christ at the beginning of the Christian life, but then the whole of our lives being shaped by the cross thereafter. Jesus who died for us while we are still sinners. We can pray, can't we, that he would enable us to show that same unconditional love to our spouses. Thirdly, to those married to unbelievers. And the situation here is where two people are married. One of them becomes a Christian. And just looking at this uh, earlier on in the week, it seems to me that this is a great encouragement. There are a a number of us in the church family in this situation. And these verses, I think, should be a great encouragement to us. Have a look at verses 12 and 13. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, verse 12, Paul says, I not the Lord, which, of course, does not mean that what Paul is writing is somehow less authoritative than what the Lord Jesus said, and that we're sort of free to to take it or leave it, in terms of uh, what Paul says here. No, Paul speaks here, as elsewhere, with the full authority of an apostle of the Lord Jesus. But he's speaking about something which Jesus himself did not address in his earthly ministry. Notice the big principle is there again in verses 12 and 13. Don't divorce your unbelieving spouse. It may be that some of the Christians in Corinth thought perhaps they should leave their marriage having become Christians because that in some way they would be spiritually defiled through their union with an unbeliever. Perhaps they thought they could serve Jesus more effectively if they left their spouse. Well, Paul replies, doesn't he, with words of great reassurance in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Far from being defiled by being married to an unbeliever, actually quite the opposite is the case. The unbeliever is made holy. Now, clearly, that doesn't mean they will automatically be saved. As Paul says, verse 16, you simply don't know whether or not they will be. They may be, they may not be. But they are holy set apart to hear and possibly receive the gospel in a way that wouldn't be the case if they were not married to someone who was a Christian now at the risk of causing great embarrassment John and Helen Reese are marvelous examples of this so John and Helen were married Helen became a Christian and later on uh, John became a Christian it's a wonderful story Uh, do ask them about it uh, afterwards over coffee God's kindness you see Likewise, the children of such marriages are to be regarded as holy. So don't think that somehow, if you're in a marriage like this, if you're a Christian believer, if you're married to an unbeliever, don't think that you are in some way a second-class Christian. Don't think that in some way your Christian service and your Christian ministry is second-class. No, verse 17, live out the life God has given you. Yes, verse 15, if your unbelieving spouse wants a divorce, then you are not enslaved. I take it that means you are free to divorce and free to remarry. Otherwise, says Paul, stick with it. And Paul's teaching here, it reflects, doesn't it, something, yes, of the uncertainty, but also the heartache and, I guess, the sacrifice that actually sticking with it may involve And when we ask the question, well, what's going to enable someone to stick with it, to stick with possibly a difficult marriage, and to do so with the possible, though by no means certain, end result that they may become a Christian, but they may not. What's going to enable someone to stick with a marriage like that? Well, surely again, it is only the gospel. It is Christ's great love for us. that that when we were still sinners, he died for us. His unconditional love for sinful people. And the assurance that his spirit lives in us, that his spirit will enable us to get on and live the life that God has given us to live. Even though actually it may be very different from the kind of life that we were expecting. So one big principle three specific examples.